0: welcome 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 how's everybody doing hope you are doing well my name is andrew coon focus compounding sit next to jeff cannon jeff how's it going today
1: it's going very well andrew
0: how's it going with you it's going great we hope it's going great for everybody else hey if you're watching us on youtube make sure you hit that subscribe button thumbs this video up if you're listening on the podcast side of things uh, make sure you hit that subscribe button And a rating review goes a very long way. If you like the work we're doing here, you want to save our backlog, make sure you do that. 50% of podcast downloads uh, come from the backlog. Fun fact. So if that is uh, something that you would like to keep before it goes behind an $8 pay uh, wall, uh, make sure you download all of them. And uh, on July 1st, they will be behind a paywall. Only 20 of the most recent episodes will be available for free. If you're a regular listener, no worries. We pump out five a week, so that's um, you know about a month's worth of podcast. Mm-hmm. So that should not affect you at all. Uh, but for everybody else, um, if you want to save that, uh, make sure you do that. And then we're going to have other content as well that we're coming up with for the people that pay uh, the eight dollars a month. So want to thank everybody for um, all the support with that. So in today's podcast, we are going to be talking about why analyzing asset plays is so hard. Okay, and. There's this whole, I guess, chatter going around, um, you know, whether on message boards or Twitter about asset plays in general and how almost like they're a thing of the past, mm-hmm. right? So back in Ben Graham's day and even in, you know, Warren Buffett days, uh, early on in their career, in his career, Warren Buffett, he used mm-hmm. to, you know, invest in a lot of asset plays, right? Gone to yeah. the days of like Sanborn Maps and finding, you know, companies where, um, you know, a lot of their, uh, current assets are in stocks. You could take a control position, liquidate the stocks, pay out the cash to the shareholders and go on about your business. Mm-hmm. Generally speaking, that's not, you know, you don't find a lot of those opportunities anymore. Right. Um, but there seems to be a very big, I would say negative stigma around asset plays in general. And I figured we could talk about it and why it is, you know, so hard, um, uh, you know, investing in them. And we've invested in a couple asset plays. Yes. You've invested in, in asset plays throughout your whole career right um and maybe we could just kind of go through you know the different experiences that you've had which ones have worked which ones haven't what we could take away and then kind of go from there sure so um what was the first asset play
1: that you invested in do you remember Hmm. Mm, no i don't think i do remember i don't think i remember okay um to be honest uh i mean i can remember some things in which it was a significant part of the valuation that they had a lot of cash for instance uh but i can't think of one that the only reason for it uh i mean i can think of many but they must they couldn't have been any of the first ones uh that is is that the only reason for the investment was assets and that's also a thing that's difficult to to define in some cases because sometimes it's not just um you know asset plates a mix between them uh so that that's something to to keep in mind. So, like uh, for instance, is a net and an asset play? Because like a question could be like, for instance, um, what is my record been with asset plays? And mm-hmm. my my knee jerk reaction to that would be, oh, bad. It's been bad, you know, because I'm thinking recently about some things that I would consider asset plays. But of course, some people might define net nets, their net current asset value stocks, as yeah. um, asset plays. Mm-hmm. And if that's the case, then my record in Uh, net net portfolio is better than in any other kind of investing i've ever done okay so it could be the best uh record so it depends on you know how we define it i guess okay so how do we define it yeah um so for instance on this trip we saw at least three different things that would be defined as asset plays and in, in each of those cases a significant though not the only part of it is um land okay so i do think that people think of asset plays as things that have a lot of um Idle land, or uh, and and that also gets into the thing about if if you're thinking about an asset plan set of an earnings basis, by definition, really, that means that the earnings uh, power of the asset has to be low, okay? Because if it was high, then the stock price would be, then then you'd be thinking of as a low PE stock. So, this is one of the problems. I talked about the gram number and stuff, some very attractive Ben Graham type stocks are not necessarily considered asset plays because they're both low price to book and price to earnings. So for instance, I bought into an insurer and did well in it. uh, And I bought it at a big discount to book and it was sold out much closer to book is that an asset play? Well, a lot of people would say no, because it had a P of like five. So, they say it's an earnings thing. So, for whatever reason, earnings kind of gets the the headline thing that people are more interested in, I guess. Sure, So, what often happens with a value stock is that it's both cheap on a P and and price to book. So, I think when we're talking about asset plays, I guess we're talking about things that are cheap in terms of um, book value alone or assets alone. See, this is where it gets complicated because some of the things we saw, for instance, one has a high P, Right. But another one has an incredibly high dividend yield. So, do people, a lot of people call that an income stock. So, it's definitely selling at less than its assets are worth. But if it also has a 10% dividend yield or something, then people go, oh, that's an income stock, right? Mm -hmm. In the other case, it's definitely very cheap versus its land. But it also might have a P of 7, 8, or 9. Does that make it not a value stock? At what point does it become not? Like mm-hmm. at 14 it doesn't, but at 7 it does, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? So so it's very common for both earnings and book value to be cheap at the same time. So I guess the ones that people are thinking of probably are the ones that have virtually no earnings, but are very cheap versus assets. So like a land bank. Yes, Something like a land bank would be a good example. Okay. Right? So we talked about like Maui land and pineapple, right? But I think another one related to that would be like um, Cool, So the timber company, KEWL. I think that one also would fall into that because on a given year, it doesn't cut down enough trees to produce enough cash flow to be very cheap versus its um, uh, market cap. Right? I think the problem with asset plays is everybody going into the stocks, they
0: automatically assume that management is just going to, essentially sell all the assets liquidate the company and then pay it out to all the shareholders.
1: Absolutely. Everyone right.
0: goes in there with that assumption. And here's the thing, right? We've spoken to managements, we've visited, you know, companies. Mm-hmm. I mean what I'd say 9 out of 10 management is not going to do that. Correct. Yeah. I mean what are they going to do? They're going to do away with their salaries and their employees and their livelihood. A lot of times, that's just not going to be the case, you know. Yeah. So I mean, when investors, maybe that's why they get such a bad rep, is because they go into it thinking that they're going to do, you know, exactly that. And there's been other situations as well where we've seen activists, right, mm-hmm. investing companies. Where they'll badger management for them to do something, and you know because maybe management has too much cash or they just haven't made an acquisition in a while, and then you know management, which is out of nowhere, they'll make some sort of acquisition They just kind of tune out the investor, right? Brilliant. So it's kind of like again, I always talk about this idea of like the short termism of the market. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if it comes back to that. Um, but that's the problem I do think is that a lot of investors they invest in an asset place thinking that management is just going to liquidate the company
1: essentially and return the capital to shareholders, right? And that's why I think you should, like, if you want to be involved in asset investing, read the uh, book, There's Always Something to Do About Peter Cundall, because he stresses that it's patience, 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 that you buy at a really, really low price versus it's fair value in terms of assets, and then it takes longer to work out than you expected. But it's you still get a good return because you bought a very cheap valuation. And that's one part that I strongly stress to people. Uh, I just wrote a Focus Compounding Daily that'll be about that kind of thing, and um, I think people are too willing to buy into something that's at 80% of what they think the value is and they may be too reluctant to buy into something that's at 15%. Sure, because they're saying like, what does the market know that I don't know or has it always been right. cheap for 20 years? Yeah. How am I ever going to you know realize my money and get my return? Right, but what they don't realize is that If you buy something at 15% of tangible book value, let's say, and you're sure that the tangible book value is is, that the fair value is equal to or better, right? So like, say, say you're buying something that's tangible book value, let's say land buildings and stuff, and it's old, you know that so it's probably, you know, it hasn't been up in US, it wouldn't be adjusted for inflation and stuff. So there's a decent chance that the book values aren't even accurate. So they're probably not that great that way. And then you're buying at, let's say, let's say 20% of book value, okay? Well, if you're doing that, then that if it just triples, that gets it to less than two thirds of book value. So a lot of things can work out with management stuff, even management trying to rip you off and everything, where you still will triple. And even if that doesn't happen for years, a triple that doesn't happen for years is still pretty good. Think about it: if a triple happens over 10 over more than 10 years, you actually have a return that's likely to beat the market. So that's pretty amazing. When you consider that 10 years is a very long time to wait. Yeah. Let me tell you, you're going to beat the market if it happens in like nine or 10 years or something, if it triples, and you're going to be annoyed because one, it's worth book value, and it's only going to end up being sold for 60% of book value. And two, you're going to be annoyed that it took so long. And yet, although you're going to have all that uh, stress and agitation about it, and you're going to complain about it and, and vent to people about it, both those things about how much you hate management and how it took forever to happen, you still will beat the market. So because the, the hurdle is so low, Whereas the hurdle is actually very high if you have a value that's too close to book value or or whatever it might be fair value of what it is. So you want to be very careful to buy things at deep discounts to their appraisal. The other thing is that you want to buy things that are um, likely to maintain their value or go up. So the two that we mentioned are actually pretty good that way. Timberland and resort land in Maui are both really good in that they don't actually um, chew up much cash. They normally produce some cash or basically are are break even, and at the same time, on top of that, there's actually an appreciation with inflation and sometimes with other things too. So, um, in fact, in both those cases, those returns have been a lot higher than inflation in the long run of the asset, not necessarily the stock. And that's the difficult part because the stocks in both cases get way out of line. So, if you go back and look at what happened before the housing crisis, timberland in the market, the stock market was valued too high. And definitely Maui land and pineapple was valued too high. Um, If you look at what it was valued at about 12 years ago or 13 years ago or whatever now versus today, if we were going to graph that against what we thought the land should be appraised for, it's dramatic. It's even more than it looks like because actually over time, the land has probably become more valuable in the sense of what people locally would think it was worth. And the stock has plunged. So that gives you an idea of how expensive it was before. So how on um connected to reality is and that can easily happen with asset plays and so then people look at the stock performance right and that's the thing that can be tough you say okay the stock hasn't done anything for 20 years that could be true but a stock that hasn't done anything for 20 years could be really good if the asset has done something for 20 years sure right the the question really is whether the asset or the business or whatever has done something for 20 years there are cases where i find a stock and go oh it's improved a lot the actual business, if I go around and ask people about what the asset is worth, it's actually worth a lot more today, but the stock market isn't giving it recognition for that. I think the
0: reality is is that investors would rather... Let's say, I would think like, let's say over 10 years, right, an investor was going to make 15% per year, Mm. but that return would come pretty much entirely in year 10, Mm. as opposed to making 10% per year, you know, pretty evenly as a straight line. I think investors would take that as opposed to the 15% with it coming in year 10. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so I think that it comes down to, again, especially if markets are going up, Mm. you know, and you're comparing yourself maybe to other investors or yes. whatever. It just makes it much more challenging.
1: Yeah. I- investors only prefer lumpy returns if they happen immediately. <laughs> or straight up. Yeah. yeah, That's the only thing they want.
0: Yeah. And, and it's like the funny thing. Is like, uh, people love volatility when it's to the upside. Yeah. Know? Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. It, it makes it much more uh, challenging. What is tricky about it? And, and you've done other things to, I guess, value the assets of companies, right? Mm-hmm. So looking at land records sure. and tax records and stuff yep. like that. Maybe take us through that process because I don't think
1: Maybe a lot of our listeners, maybe they just don't do this. Okay, so the I would say one thing is I want high-quality assets. And so the two things you want are high-quality assets, which could mean that they are uh, either generate returns over time that are decent or they um, are highly marketable. They can be turned into liquid things or you could borrow against them or something like that. So some of the best assets usually are cash, um, land, certain very good buildings, and receivables – But in rare cases, it can also be other stuff. So for instance, we own a car dealer and they hadn't really borrowed against their used car stock uh, compared to how other car dealers do. I consider that a meaningful asset because you can borrow against it. Whereas say inventory in some small business to business thing of whatever that's kind of niche, it's very hard to borrow against. It may not turn very fast, so it doesn't turn into cash, all those problems. So what I don't want is a good example is uh, many, many years ago, there was a company that was very, very cheap on like price to book and stuff like that. But what they owned were rigs for um, drilling oil in the Gulf of Mexico. Okay. And now something happened to disrupt that and whatever. But absent that anyway, I don't like that very much because that's a very specific kind of asset that has one very specialized use is very hard to turn into cash and isn't necessarily that marketable. Now, if it gets to an absurd price, of course, even things that are cheap like tankers and whatever, okay. Um, and same as those uh, those rigs and stuff. But um, in many ways, those things will only be worth something if that market recovers anyway. So like if they're not going to be worth something unless there's also recovery in the market, so then their earnings will go up anyway. So they're considered asset plays, but really their earnings will recover anyway. Mm-hmm. Because if, if the earnings for equipment used in drilling in the gulf does not go up then um there's there's just not gonna be many people wanting to buy it right like we kind of talked about that with planes and with with um airlines and things like that if all cruise lines and airlines are losing tons of money The fact that they happen to, in some cases, own some ships or some planes, they're probably not that marketable at that moment where they're losing the money. So they're considered, like people might talk about them as asset plays, but really it's a recovery play. So the things that are different are the ones you can separate out. And a lot of times the ones that you can separate out are um, the best is usually land that can have multiple uses. Uh, cash is the best, obviously, but but people are very quick to recognize cash. Sure. But land less so because in the United States, certainly it could be held at very unrealistic values. And so that's why we sometimes go and look at some things and stuff like that. And sometimes it could be that you're holding far in excess of what you need and all sorts of things like that. So sometimes you can shut down a business that's losing money or something, sell off the land, have it redeveloped, whatever, and um, you get a lot of value from that.
0: What are your thoughts on maybe structuring your portfolio? We've talked about this like almost as like your VC, where maybe you spread out the risk a little bit. Mm-hmm. But let's say you take ten to fifteen percent of your portfolio, or even twenty percent of your portfolio, and you put that in asset place where you're like, okay, maybe over ten years, the probabilities so I'm thinking about it from that perspective, you could hit a good IRR as opposed to, um, you know, putting
1: a third or twenty five percent or twenty percent into you know what I'm saying right one play well rationally I don't think it makes sense but I think that psychologically it will work for people because weirdly if they're if they're spread out over so many different things they won't feel that they need to sell out from impatience yeah so see if you buy buy 10 different asset plays then in a given year, one of them might be working out in a way that you're okay with. And so you hold the other nine. But if instead you held all the um, investments that you would have in 10 asset plays in one, even though it might be a better asset play, it can drive you crazy if three, four years things don't happen. And remember, a lot of times what's going to happen is there's going to be a deal to buy or something that's going to fall through. That's going to happen a lot. Mm-hmm. And so that kind of thing will happen all the time. COVID happens, then you, the deal doesn't happen. I wonder if... Credit som- crisis deal doesn't sometimes happen.
0: Sometimes it makes me wonder, like, does management purposely do that just to, like, get news out there? Oh, that, that you know, it's going to be that. acquired at $300 per share, that's this amount of right. makers per, you know, stock
1: or per share. So it makes people like, oh, I guess that is what it's worth, you know? Yeah, so that could be the case and some people think about that and stuff. I mean, I've, um, you know, I, I don't know. It, it depends. We, we, we saw something recently where... Um, a deal fell through, but they ended up paying a much higher price per acre for the much smaller deal that they did. So you know that gives you some indication. But that is something also I should warn about too. If a company owns a lot of acreage, you do have to keep in mind that there's going to be great variation in how valuable each piece is, and also how much it'll be worth if sold off in small pieces versus very large. Mm-hmm. So like s- taking the example of Maryland and pineapple, right? Selling like one house site there or something could have an incredibly high value per acre same with like cool selling off some land that happens to be looking at a a lake or something versus trying to sell off 10,000 acres at once or something like that and that's true even in selling 100 acres instead of 1,000 or something for some uh, project that someone wants to do Mm -hmm. you know how would you think about selling then so is it when
0: the like let's say like it's land for example the right. value of the land per share
1: is you know that gap closes how would you yeah, think about that that's how i would think about it so i would value it all the time that way and you can try to predict the future return by looking at how much of a gap is left to close um, but there's two aspects to it so one is the price versus the gap left okay but the other one is the natural return in the asset and that's very very important so if it's a stock that's losing money that gap has to be really big. However, if it's a stock that never burns cash and, in fact, has some sort of business that generates a small amount of cash, it can be really small. And uh, that's the part that I think is difficult for people to understand sometimes is that when I – like they say, well, when will this close with something? But you have to understand that like, if it's a has a business that almost justifies the investment in the stock – Plus, it has an asset that's worth an amount. Yeah. So, we've talked about things like and that. And that's what a lot of your situations have been, right? Right. So, yeah. we've talked about things like that, and it would depend. But as an example, let's take uh, Canterbury Park, in, um, uh, which is a casino, basically. It's a racetrack, but the value's in the card casino, right? But they're doing a development around it and stuff. So, if you buy it at a price which is close to the earning power justifying it, then you can you can get a lot of return. You don't You don't need a lot of annual return. You can wait a long time for the development to work out. However, if let's say there was no card casino and there was actually a racetrack losing a little money, then it's totally different sure. because then you're actually being you're being charged money to, to hold on to so it. So you get a leap on the land. Yeah. And actually what it's best to compare to is um, closed-end funds, holding companies, and insurers because all of them have this weird thing where people uh, say that there's a standard discount. So you hear people say holding companies deserve a certain... So like a closed-end fund should trade at a certain discount. Or a holding company deserves a certain discount. Or an insurer, say a life insurer or whatever, should trade at discounted book. That's all wrong. That's not right. Because it should come entirely depend on whether... It, those things have two aspects to them. They have an asset right? A pile of assets which you're buying, which could be leveraged or not. But then they also have a cash flows year by year. So if you buy into an insurer, you're, you're getting an investment portfolio. Buffett was talking about this in the book that I read recently, which is the um, book Capital Allocation, History of a New England Texas ML, 1955 to 1985. Okay? So... Shout out to Jacob. Yeah. So um, a good point, a great point that Buffett made in that is when he bought National Indemnity, he said, he bought it, let's say, at I'll give it, say, say it was 125% of book value. So let's say that he paid, I'll round the numbers off because it's a little easier this way. So say he paid 12.5 million, he paid less than that. But for something that had a book value of 10 million, it had a book value less than that. But that's what we'll pretend. So he paid, in his view, 2.5 million for the company. Mm-hmm. Now everyone else would say, no, you pay 12.5 million. Uh, but I he said it doing. doesn't matter mm-hmm. because it's an insurance company. It 10 million of what it is, is um, owned free and clear, net of liabilities, a portfolio of bonds and stocks. Well, all I'm doing at Berkshire is liquidating the textile business over time and putting it into stocks and bonds. Mm-hmm. So I am would own stocks and bonds whether I owned an insurer or not. So it's just a question really of what premium I'm paying. In essence, I'm swapping everything except the goodwill. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a very good way of looking at it. So I think that's a good way of looking in terms of the assets too, are, okay, the assets that you're buying, that is, Is The price you're paying is only the amount over the other part of the business that you would buy or not. And so it becomes much trickier to buy a business in which there's something losing money, burning money. And it's much easier to buy into something in which there is some earnings from it, right? So let's say you buy something that's at 25 times earnings, Mm -hmm. but it also has this idle land that could be a much more attractive thing than you think because you're actually being paid 4% a year now yes 4% a year is underperforming the stock market right so like let's say it's at 25 times earnings and it's not growing that sounds like a bad stock and I'm not disagreeing that it's not a great stock but in essence you're getting a 4% return on that part of your money Mm -hmm. and then you're getting the what people like to call it the lottery ticket or whatever yeah the that the land part yeah the best thing of course is when both are justified right so like you find something where there's a, it owns 1000 acres of something and it produces 10 million dollars of of earnings you pay uh 12 uh you know pay, you know, pay 120 million dollars for the company and let's say that that 1000 acres is worth 120 million dollars or whatever you know so in other words you're justified on both sides of it is the best outcome that way mm-hmm. the i think the problem with the many asset plays is not how long they would take to work out or something by far i think the problem is the future capital allocation and this is something you know, that we talked about Yes. So one example is uh, that I was talking to you about, and we visited something related to this, is that there's people who like this other company a lot. that I don't like that much, because it retains a lot of its earnings and reinvests. And the company we were looking at is a trust, so it can't do that. And I view that as completely different. If you owned a toll bridge, and it was in form of a trust, I'd be very excited about it. Because I know you can't try to go and buy another toll bridge. Yeah, do you want to explain that to the listeners? The way that tru- like the trust works, right? In so situation. the way that the trust works is that basically it does very little management of the business other than trying to produce income for you. So it does some slight investing, in other things around it, but very, very little. It certainly does not acquire other things. They basically pay it all out to the they pay it all out to the, shareholders, or, the shareholders, or the trustees. Yeah. So because of that reason, they're not going to try to um, compound it over time. Now, to be fair, in the case of like land trusts and stuff, actually they do compound their value over time too. Even though there's not active attempts to acquire things and stuff, they'll still compound their value over time. But it's much more attractive to own um, – and that could be true for anything. Like when people ask me about uh, some mine or something, mm-hmm. one problem I have is if I could guarantee that it would only be that mine, then I could analyze sure. it. Sure. But if I know that's the best copper mine in the world, but they're going to use the funds from that to go and try to explore for uh, to produce another mine somewhere else in the world – I don't know anything about the economics of that. It may not work out, whatever. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the earnings are being turned into something else that way. So the problem that I find with asset plays is that they continue to buy more and more assets. That's true with Timberland, for instance, too. The company we were talking about there, cool. In that case, right, there was a change in management, and it seems like the new management isn't going to buy more Timberland. The problem with the old management, or one of the problems with it was, it actually borrowed money to buy more Timberland. Mm-hmm. So even if it was trading at a, a discount to what its timberland was probably worth. It was then buying in the market timberland at a price that was as high or higher than the fair value of what it's worth. So in essence, a lot of your, you're, you're not getting that discount on a continual basis, right? But if you could buy an asset play, which you knew somehow, even whether it was toxic management, it was a trust, whatever you believed was not going to reallocate more capital to that same business, that actually can be very very attractive, Mm -hmm. I have to say that that can be. Like if it has land because of some previous business it was in that you know it's not gonna go back into, it has no interest in being in the real estate business, but it's on the books, that really can be attractive. Because you know they're not in the business of buying land at overinflated prices. You're just getting in at this really cheap price. But that's the problem is the reallocation. So I don't like businesses that kind of buy up repeatedly, buy up a bunch of different things, uh, different assets. Yeah, Mm -hmm. that's the problem.
0: I'd be curious to see if there's some sort of study that's been done maybe over the last 20 years of – quote-unquote asset plays and the results and how
1: they've been and stuff like that yeah the problem for asset plays lately of course is low inflation mm-hmm. so the thing that would change everyone's mind about them is if we had inflation like you did in the 70s through through to the, like if you have inflation like you did from like 1965 to 1985 if that ever repeats then people will suddenly love asset plays they'll outperform uh operating businesses mm-hmm. yeah yeah that's crazy
0: yeah because it just seems like nobody really you know, cares about them. Right. No matter what the valuation is. And mm-hmm. even to your point earlier of, well, maybe if you buy into the company at 25 times earnings, it's paying you 4% on that mm-hmm. asset. A lot yeah. more people will be more comfortable buying that than the other example that you gave right. of like maybe two to three times earnings and below yeah. book value. Exactly. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with Jeff and I on the Focus Compounding Podcast. Make sure you hit the subscribe button both on YouTube and the podcast side of things. And our rating review goes a very long way for us. Um, and make sure you save all of the pay- podcast because we are coming up to July 1st. I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in and we will see you in the next podcast.